Welcome back to another episode of the Wiley Connected podcast, where we talk about issues emerging that affect technology in Washington, D.C. Today, we're talking about some significant movement on privacy policy issues that has picked up in the past month or so, uh, particularly here in D.C., but not exclusively. Uh, There's a lot going on and a lot to unpack that's just happened in the last few weeks. So we're going to try and break down the parts that we find most interesting and relevant. Um, Here in Studio W with me is Hap Rigby, one of our senior policy advisors who helps our clients with strategic advice on legislative and public policy issues. Prior to joining us here at Wiley, he was a professional staff member and policy advisor in the Senate for over a decade. We also have Kat Scott and Boyd Garrett, who are in our privacy practice and have been following these privacy updates closely, uh, giving updates um, and analysis to our clients and posting blogs on our website and generally helping us keep up with all these many moving parts. So let's dive in. And maybe Kat, you can start out with an overview of what has actually happened and why it's significant. Yeah, thanks, Megan. The big news is that Senator Roger Wicker, who's a Republican from Mississippi, and Senator Maria Cantwell, a Democrat from Washington, each released their own draft privacy legislation. We've seen a ton of proposals over the past year or so from both sides of the aisle covering a lot of ground. But these proposals from these senators are particularly important. Uh, The Senate Commerce Committee is the likely source of any successful, comprehensive federal privacy legislation. And uh, Senator Wicker is the chairman of that committee. Senator Cantwell is the ranking member. So proposals from them are a pretty big deal. I'm going to let Hap get into the politics of that. So um, Hap, can you tell us a little bit about how we've actually gotten here? Sure. Uh, Thanks, Kat. You pointed out a pretty important point about Senate Commerce Committee. The membership of that committee uh, reflects a pretty broad spectrum on both the Republican and the Democratic sides of the aisle. And so what you mentioned about being important and being the source of likely future successful uh, privacy legislation is right on spot. It's going to be important that you find consensus within this very uh, diverse group of member uh, members on the Commerce Committee. And so if we look back a couple of years and uh, you mentioned uh, the current chairman, Roger Wicker, and ranking member Maria Cantwell, uh, they just came into those positions at the beginning of this calendar year when the new Congress sat. Uh, the former chairman, uh, John Thune, Republican from South Dakota, has now become the uh, Senate's Republican whip. And so he, in doing that, uh, had to give up his chairmanship of the Commerce Committee making the space for Roger Wicker to move into that. And then on the Democratic side, the last Congress, Senator Bill Nelson from Florida had been the ranking member. He lost his reelection bid and that opened the spot uh, for Cantwell to move into. So neither Wicker nor Cantwell are new members to the committee. They're not new members to these issues, but they are playing a new role in leadership on these issues. And so that takes time really in any activity, but even more so in, in something as a important uh, to consumers and with such a spotlight on it as consumer privacy. One thing I would point out that we are kind of at a not a culmination yet because there isn't successful legislation, but where we have gotten with these two important uh, documents from both sides of uh, the leadership of the Commerce Committee is that for the last two years plus, you've had a bipartisan working group on the committee. Previous Chairman Thune was part of that. Uh, Current Chairman Wicker was also part of that. And then Senator Jerry Moran of Kansas, uh, who chairs the subcommittee on consumer protection, was playing a role there. On the Democratic side last Congress and continuing uh, in this Congress, you have 
Chairman Moran's subcommittee ranking member, partner, Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut, and Senator Schatz from Hawaii, who is the current ranking member of the telecommunications subcommittee on commerce. And so you had a lot of interest already developing uh, over the last two years. And again, we've, we may see here a uh, really a coming together in a closing in on a unified product. Hey, Hap, can I ask a follow-up on that? I mean, how well do these folks work together at this point? I mean, is this a staff-driven kind of discussion or the members themselves really involved in this? Do you have a sense? Well, I think the staff relationships are critically important. I think a lot of folks look past the uh, kind of the human element in Congress and the abilities of staff to develop relationships and, frankly, to develop a level of trust with one another about what the motivations of the various members are um, and how they can actually work together to find common victory, so to speak. So that involves constant compromising. Uh, You have to look at the political element. You have to look at the policy side of things. And, of course, procedurally, uh, both chambers of Congress have their own rules and their own institutional sort of uh, mechanisms that come into play, uh, which we'll touch on later. But that's absolutely a good point. I think uh, the longer, and I mentioned uh, a moment ago that Chairman Wicker and uh, Senator Cantwell as ranking member are really only a few months into their new roles as leaders of the committee. And so their staffs likewise are getting to know each other. And the longer you have continuity in that institutional kind of structure, uh, the more likely you're going to get uh, a meaningful result. So one thing to ask on that working group that you were talking about. So you said there has been a a working group for the past year or so working on this privacy legislation. I noticed that on the Cantwell bill, there are other co-sponsors, right? Schatz is on it as well as Klobuchar and Markey. But the, the Wicker bill is just a discussion draft. Is there anything to read into the other Republican members from that working group not being part of this discussion draft? No, I think it's more deferential to the new chairman. Uh, really, every every member has their own interest in both style of leadership and also policy uh, preferences. And I think, uh, again, last Congress, you had a lot of activity and momentum that was building throughout the committee. And again, you had a different chairman at the time uh, with Chairman Thune. He's currently now become chairman of a subcommittee uh, on telecommunications policy. And I think he has wanted to you know, really give the new chairman, Wicker, the opportunity to put his own mark on this particular policy, but also uh, to give him space to develop his own relationship with uh, ranking member Cantwell and uh, kind of show a path for members of his side. But uh, those members are still active, of course, and they still have products that they are, are interested in, uh, either individually or, uh, you know, I suspect as time goes on, you'll see some other members join an effort led by Chairman Wicker. Thanks for that background, Hap. Um, another update that I wanted to flag, too, is that in addition to these two pieces of draft legislation, uh, the Senate Commerce Committee held a hearing on those bills uh, and related privacy issues. Um, So Congress has held a bunch of these hearings on privacy throughout the year, um, but this one was the most significant by far because the committee was actually discussing viable proposals to work from as opposed to um, just general principles and discussing things at a higher level. Yeah, I thought that hearing was actually pretty interesting, uh, both in terms of the folks who showed up to testify at the hearing and the consensus that there seemed to be across the proposals, really. How close, when you look at the proposals, how close the Republican and Democratic proposals are to each other on a lot of the 
key substantive issues in privacy legislation. I sort of find that amazing that in the past few years we've gotten so far. And I think, as we'll discuss in a little bit, California's law has done a lot of that pushing. uh, European regulation has done a lot of pushing on that. But I want to get into a little bit the politics of how these proposals came to be so close. Um, But maybe, Kat and Boyd, you can help our listeners understand those key areas of overlap, because we've crossed a lot of bridges getting to these these bills, and a lot of decisions have really kind of already been made about where we're going to land on substantive privacy law. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, So there are significant areas of overlap between these two bills. Um, So one example, the two bills share um, some key definitions that go to scope. Um, So one of the most important questions when looking at a privacy bill is what type of data is actually covered by the bill. So in these two drafts, the definition of covered data is similar. Senator Cantwell defines it as information that, quote, identifies or is linked or reasonably linkable to an individual or a consumer device, including derived data. And then Senator Wicker's bill defines it nearly identically as, quote, information that identifies or is linked or reasonably linkable to an individual or device that is linked or reasonably linkable to an individual. So the Cantwell Bill's definition is slightly broader. Um, So for example, it uses that phrase derived data, meaning that it includes assumptions or conclusions that is derived from the covered data. Um, So they're not completely identical, um, but they're very much in the same ballpark. And I think one of the things that's interesting about that is how much adjacent to these privacy debates are discussions about um, equity in big data uses and things like that. So that's where some of these concepts about derived data are coming from. It's the uses of data and some of these forward-looking issues that some folks in Congress want to address. Yeah. And another thing to look at, especially on the definition of covered data, is what's not included, right? And the bills have a lot of overlap there as well. Both proposals have significant carve-outs for de-identified data, for employee data, which is pretty important, and also data or, or certain data that is public. There are, of course, definitional differences between uh, the two proposals on each of these exclusions. Um, so, for example, the Cantwell bill only would carve out public records, and that is information that's lawfully made available from like government records, so a fairly narrow category. Senator Wicker's um, exclusion for publicly available information is broader. It would encompass both Senator Cantwell's public records, but also information that's uh, more widely available to the public, like stuff in a phone book or uh, things that you would find in news media or um, websites. So there's definitely a lot of overlap between a lot of the substantive areas of the bill, but this is a good example, I think, of even where there is overlap, there are still things to hash out to to get both proposals to the same place. Right. And I think that's just a common theme across these areas of overlap, um, where you don't have perfect one-to-one agreement, but you've got meaningful commonalities between the two bills. Um, so another example of this would be the consumer rights that these bills establish. Um, so both bills taking an approach similar to the GDPR or CCPA establish consumer rights, and they establish rights to transparency, access, deletion, correction, and portability. Um, the bills treat consent issues similarly in operationalizing these rights. So they both create certain opt-out rights And they distinguish between regular covered data and sensitive data, creating opt-in rights for sensitive data. Um, And this is another area where definitions matter a lot. 
Um, so both bills define the term sensitive covered data more broadly than the FTC's current privacy framework. But Senator Cantwell's bill goes even further than Senator Wicker's. Yeah, I thought that was notable. The Cantwell bill defines um, sensitive covered data as phone numbers and email addresses, while Wicker's bill includes those credentials only in combination with a password or an answer to a security question. Um, these are important issues um, that we deal with a lot with clients. But you know, regardless of these differences, I think the overlap we've identified is pretty interesting. I mean, both of the bills go in some respects, further with consumer rights than California's new privacy law, uh, the CCPA. That bill, for example, doesn't create a right to correction and doesn't call for opt-out consent for processing sensitive data. Yeah. And uh, the two bills also go further than the CCPA on other things as well. So the two proposals at the federal level uh, create uh, a bunch of additional business obligations. Um, so, for example, they would create reasonable and appropriate data security requirements on covered entities. Uh, covered entities would have to abide by data minimization principles and also conduct privacy impact assessments. And those kinds of obligations aren't found in the CCPA um, explicitly. Um, so while there are differences between the two federal proposals, even on those areas, right? So privacy impact assessments would only be triggered for certain entities under Wicker, but uh, for more entities under Cantwell, that there is basic consensus that those things should be happening, even to some degree, um, is a pretty significant step towards consensus. Yeah. Um, and one last area of overlap that I want to make sure that we we talk about is enforcement. Um, and by this, I mean public enforcement. We'll talk about private enforcement in a bit. Uh, but both bills allow concurrent enforcement by state attorneys general and greatly expand the role of the FTC. Um, so both bills give the FTC significant enforcement authority um, and also rulemaking authority. Yeah, I find this to be particularly noteworthy. And I've talked about this with um, different business groups and clients. I mean, in the past several years, there has not been this broad consensus or the appearance of broad consensus. As Kat pointed out, not uh, others haven't signed on to the Wicker Bill, so I don't want to assume that that's the starting point. But you know, there is a, an emerging consensus that the FTC should have a pretty darn important role. Some of the witnesses at the hearing recently talked about massive staff increases for the Federal Trade Commission. Um, you know, last year, there were some proposals that called for a, a new independent agency called the Digital Privacy Agency. So I think the the emergence of the FTC as a central player here is really notable. But what's Funny to me, in a way, is how far we've come. Just in 2015, most of the business community was fighting the FTC's jurisdiction over data security and privacy using its Section 5 generic authority over unfair and deceptive trade practices. And look at where we are now just four years later, where people are clamoring, in a way, some are clamoring for Federal Trade Commission superintendents over these issues. That, to me, is a really notable movement in terms of substantive policy, the comfort level with the FTC. Um, shifting back to the bills, it's not all agreement and, and rainbows and butterflies here on these proposals. There are a few major differences. Um, two major ones continue, although there's certainly uh, details to be worked out and compromised on, but two major issues are around preemption of state law and private rights of action. So Kat, Give me a sense of where uh, Wicker and Cantwell fall on these issues. Yeah, so I'll start with preemption. Uh, the Wicker bill broadly preempts all state laws that are related to the data privacy or security and associated activities of covered 
uh, entities. Um, there is a notable exception to that broad preemption provision for breach notification laws at the state level. Those would not be preempted, um, but other privacy legislation would. The Cantwell bill takes uh, just about the opposite approach oh, uh, to that <laughs> and uh, explicitly says that nothing in the act should be construed to preempt or displace or supplant state laws regarding consumer protection, privacy rights of employees and students, and law specifying remedies or cause of action to individuals. It also explicitly declines to preempt laws that afford a greater level of protection to individuals than the federal law. So the two uh, bills are pretty far apart on preemption, which is not a surprise. This is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, sticking points with respect to federal privacy legislation. That's right, Kat. Um, and so preemption is always a difficult issue because it really strikes right at a core fundamental question of the, really the structure of our nation between how much power is in Washington, D.C. versus the power that still resides uh, within state capitals. And so not that everybody paints by numbers in this town by any means, but Republicans tend to favor clarity and uniform rules for interstate commercial activity. And I think it's fair to say that Democrats tend to uh, appreciate the need for such clarity and uniformity, but they also favor sort of a, a force multiplication when it comes to enforcement activities. And they also like, frankly, future proofing uh, and that usually manifests itself in the scope of agency rulemaking. Um, and we'll we'll get into that a little bit more uh, in, in terms of these bills. So the preemption question is not new, and this tension also gets heightened when something is politically charged and uh, directly impactful on consumer protection as online data security uh, comes into play. So a lot of attention is on this issue, and it's clearly a flashpoint. A lot of policymaking, though, is informed by the structure and the rules of Congress as well. So I often like to remind people that one out of every five Democrats in the House of Representatives today is actually representing a district in California. Uh, one of them also happens to be the Speaker of the House. So that in itself sets a very high bar for any preemptive action uh, from Congress in the uh, specifically in uh, respect to privacy, given that California's new consumer privacy regime, the CCPA, goes into effect uh, in less than a month. Add to the, that the uh, fact that really every individual senator, of course, is uh, representing one of the 50 individual states, but they also, because of the rules of the Senate chamber, uh, can individually make legislating very difficult, uh, even for matters that ultimately have broad bipartisan support. So the preemption issue is something near and dear to our hearts here because we've dealt with preemption since the 94 and 1996 Telecom Acts. Uh, preemption's not anything new in the technology space, certainly when it comes to interstate communications. And I know there's a lot of thinking that has been going on about the importance of data and digital um, communications and activities. It's sort of the lifeblood of the internet economy. And I think there are really interesting arguments that, you know, it really is the core of interstate commerce at this point, not to mention um, the very compelling, I found very compelling testimony by Walmart's senior vice president at the recent hearing about the logistical problems of trying to comply uh, with different state uh, privacy regimes when you operate across state lines, selling goods, moving data, et cetera. So I find the preemption argument um, really interesting, but also a little frustrating given how important this stuff is and how easily it moves across state lines. It certainly complicates our advice giving when you're trying to do 50 state surveys of various things. So the other funny thing about preemption is 
On the state side, state legislatures do seem to understand the importance of preemption in certain contexts. California itself preempts local governments from doing all kinds of things when it wants to do more uniform statewide legislation and policymaking. And in fact, the CCPA itself um, addresses privacy therein as a matter of statewide concern and preempts other city and local regulations about collecting and selling personal information. So from my perspective, the same argument can be made for the federal government preempting state regulations and laws. But I guess as a matter of politics, Hap, what can we expect to come out of the preemption debate? I mean, from my perspective, there's some vested interests in that preemption debate, some of which are the trial lawyers and plaintiffs bar who'd like an additional basis on which to sue, which is state law. But from a political matter, what what do you expect? No, I think that's an interesting question. I, I, I've got some hope just having been a former staffer that there is a resolution here where, again, I think as as issues get socialized more and, and maybe some landing spots reveal themselves, uh, there can be a, a sort of a consensus position on this question. Um, and, and you're right, too, that once CCPA passed, it almost became table stakes for congressional Democrats. And again, there are a lot from the state of California, particularly in the House, um, to get a law, if there would be a law, um, at least as strong as CCPA and many of its uh, protections for consumers uh, in exchange for ever considering preempting the law. So uh, the preemption question, it it comes down to really the apparent strength of the national law. So the various elements uh, in that law about new consumer controls and new rules on companies about how they uh, handle or or even collect data from consumers um, and the enforceability of that national standard. Yeah. And, you know, moving to enforcement, I just want to raise the other elephant in the room here. um, And that's the issue of private enforcement. Um, So the Wicker Bill is silent on private enforcement. um, So it vests enforcement with only the FTC and the state attorneys general. By contrast, the Cantwell Bill creates just a really broad private right of action. So it allows a private right of action for any violation of the statute, The suit can be brought regardless of harm, and it even goes out of its way to say that all violations constitute concrete and particularized injury in fact, um, which goes to Article 3 standing and makes it really hard to throw out of court. Um, And it also allows for liquidated damages between $100 and $1,000 per violation per day, in addition to punitive damages and recovery of attorney's fees. And to top it off, it preemptively invalidates all arbitration agreements. Um, So this is definitely going to go to court or result in a settlement of some kind. Yeah, that's exactly right, Boyd. I find the Cantwell bill in that regard to be pretty darn expansive on opening the floodgates to litigation and class actions against a variety of businesses for a variety of potential allegations and missteps. Um, And, you know, we do a fair bit of work on private enforcement issues and have seen these kinds of private rights of action play out very poorly in other contexts. One example is the Federal Telephone Consumer Protection Act, or the TCPA, which has been around for a while. Uh, it has a private right of action. It prescribes statutory damages of 500 to 1500 bucks per violation or per errant call um, or allegedly misplaced uh, call, and it doesn't require a showing of actual harm. So we've seen all kinds of uh, frivolous lawsuits brought for enormous amounts of money that, you know, turn on some maybe disputed issues of what the statutory terms mean, ultimately are designed to get pretty big settlements that don't drive much value for consumers, 
but that really result in huge attorney's fee awards for the small plaintiff's bar that brings these cases. And that's why the Federal uh, Communications Commission Chairman Ajit Pai has coined this law the poster child for lawsuit abuse. Um, And then, of course, you have, as uh, Boyd and I have been working on recently, the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. Yeah. um, So the Biometric Information Privacy Act, or BIPA, is something we've been monitoring really closely. Um, BIPA allows plaintiffs to seek liquidated damages without any proof of actual damages. Um, So you don't have to prove that you were harmed in real life to win under the statute. And we've seen hundreds of suits under that statute. And collectively, companies are facing billions of dollars in liability And there's actually a decent chance that the Supreme Court is going to hear a BIPA case this term um, about Article 3 standing um, as one of the big technology companies filed for cert last week. One thing that I think is really important to remember here is that you can have privacy laws that are quite robust and protective of consumers that don't have private rights of action. So examples really are all across the board. There are biometric privacy laws like Illinois in Washington and Texas, but those states don't have private rights of action. And going back to the CCPA example, even that law doesn't have a broad private right of action, right? It has a private right of action, but it's fairly narrow. And it's only triggered when a limited set of data is subject to a breach. But the other provisions of the CCPA, those technical and complex consumer rights provisions, those can only be enforced by the California Attorney General. Um, And uh, just as a data point to back up that those robust privacy laws can work without private rights of action. The chamber um, put out a white paper this past summer that took a pretty comprehensive look at private rights of action and showed in that white paper that the bills that vested enforcement in expert agencies actually had better outcomes. I will add that um, the American Tort Reform Association just released its annual judicial hellholes paper um, with a heavy focus on private rights of action and the privacy space. And uh, we pitched in on a bit of it, um, looking at the Illinois situation and some of the cases that have been brought after the state Supreme Court there opened the floodgates to injury-free lawsuits based on things like failure to have the right paperwork um, for the collection of a thumbprint at an amusement park. So really interesting issues there. Lots of thinking is going on um, as we gear up for federal legislation. Hap, are you hopeful that there's going to be any movement on on this issue between the two camps? Well, really, you're right. This is another very thorny uh, issue. It's frankly very much related to the preemption question. Um, and I just always go back to recalling that we've got several different interests, uh, specifically with uh, consumer data privacy legislation that are a bit in tension with each other. And so the first, of course, is establishing actual consumer control over their information. The second would be codifying clear and meaningful rules for how the companies that uh, either collect or handle this consumer information must do so. And finally, and most importantly from this private right of action question is the authorizing, the mechanisms that are authorized, I should say, to adequately protect the consumer control rights on the one hand and then adequately enforce compliance or violation uh, of complying with the collection and handling rules on the company side. And so we have to have a lot of discussion about this particular issue. And it's not a black or white issue. Of course, there are different uh, variations of how a private right of action, if, if one is in fact to find its way into final legislation, could be structured I think you're going to see a lot of uh, discussion attendant with this regarding 
the harm standard, right? So is are we going to have a mere violation of a rule then be considered an injury that's then actionable? Uh, the scope of the private right of action will also be discussed. Are we talking about applying the private right of action to the entirety of every single new rule and regulation created? Or would it be for some more narrow set of consumer harm relating to perhaps sharing of highly sensitive information? Uh, and I know different uh, bills, uh, including the CCPA, of course, they'll get more attention about how they treat these because, again, CCPA is so impactful and it it does not include the uh, blanket private right of action. That's going to be meaningful. Uh, one thing that the CCPA does include, however, that I think uh, will eventually uh, come into this national debate is this opportunity to cure that companies under that regime have. And so uh, it's an interesting potential uh tool that could be used by some of the opponents of a broad private right of action uh, to bring to bear uh, to perhaps limit the private right of action that finds its way into national legislation. So you worked in the Senate Commerce Committee for many years. Can you give us a sense of what's next and sort of how these bills are going to progress from here? Yeah. So I expect, you know, we're going to see continued, frankly, it's become a much more, uh, I would say, serious and uh, good faith conversation going on now that we have live products out there in the public view. We're talking about real concepts now. These are no more uh, no more documents with a few uh, broad principles. We're talking about actual legislation. So these discussions are going to continue. As we've mentioned, there's a lot of commonality, uh, certainly in principle, but there are still a lot of uh, you know diverging interests here, or at least approaches to solve these principled interest that everybody shares. So I think we're going to see further hearing activity in the near term. And particularly, we're going to start, I think, seeing a, a, a more dedicated effort to identifying and building support where there are common legislative solutions, uh, particularly if there are compromises that uh, they find on these preemption or private right of action matters. Um, but then I also look ahead. So even if, if uh, it all does become rainbows uh, in the future here, uh, progress, uh, even if it's achieved at the committee level, even with broad bipartisan support, still a bumpy path remains. I mentioned earlier the structure of the Senate. Uh, it's important to remember that 74 out of 100 U.S. senators do not serve on the Senate Commerce Committee. Uh, but that absolutely does not mean that uh, many of them don't have a deep interest uh, in privacy, uh, consumer privacy specifically, and uh, data security issues. Um, others around the Senate may not have the specific policy interest in those areas, but they may actually uh, oversee different committees with different sectoral interests. So the financial services sector, for example, the healthcare sector, uh, senators that serve on the committees that oversee those industries would uh, also have a very keen interest in how uh, comprehensive data security and data privacy regime uh, would affect uh, the, the industries that they may be more familiar with. Uh, some of these members, just to name check a few, uh, you know, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, Josh Hawley from Missouri, uh, Chuck Grassley from Iowa. These are members, again, across the political spectrum. None of them are wallflowers, uh, and they all will absolutely uh, use every tool at their disposal to make their uh, impact on uh, privacy legislation. So the policy, the political considerations that come into play uh, even after a successful bipartisan bill uh, were to emerge from the Senate Commerce Committee, 
you know, it leaves us a lot to talk about in a future podcast. <laughs> well, thanks, everybody. That brings us to the end of this edition of Wiley Connected. Thanks so much for joining us and stay tuned for our next installment.